0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 155. Today we play several highlights from 2010. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 155. Today we finish our third full year of Christ the Center episodes. And to date, we've been able to bring you a new episode every Friday since we began three years ago. And it has become our tradition to close each year with a brief selection of highlights from the year's episodes. And so today... We're bringing you clips from eight different episodes that we think provide a decent representation of the types of discussions we have on Christ the Center. But before we get to the clips, I think a big thanks is in order. I want to thank each of our listeners and especially our supporters who have kept us running for the last three years. We are listeners supported and every contribution helps to allow us to record and edit these programs and to distribute them free of charge, I want to thank everyone and remind you that without your help, we wouldn't be able to do what we do at Reformed Forum. So please continue to help us out and visit reformedforum.org/donate to contribute. Our first clip today comes from episode number 113 with Dr. Richard Gaffin, and Dr. Gaffin speaks about Luke Acts and the function of baptism. You do teach a course it's called Acts and Paul but you have a significant section on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and of course they both were written by Luke. And so what is the significance of reading the two as a as one work or at least a connected work and and indeed an overlapping work?
1: Yeah. A uh, cu- couple of consider—you you you give me these questions, you start asking for a long lecture. That- <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, and don't hesitate to interrupt sure, me. If sure. I realize we want to be uh, conversational here. Um, so to begin with, um, I think even the most critical scholarship is going to recognize, even if they deny Lucan authorship, that this is a double work, uh, that it's the same author uh, addressed to— um, This individual Theophilus, whether he's an actual uh, person, which I I think likely, or some kind of uh, stereotypical uh, reader, and I of course see no good reason for questioning Lucan authorship. But it's uh, so by by its by the the markers, the literary markers. This is really not so much uh, two works, but a part one and a part two to Theophilus that make up a double work. Uh, I think what it further reinforces that is the overlap, as you'll look at it, between the close of the gospel, uh, beginning at verse 44 in chapter 24, mm-hmm. and the beginning of Luke 1, uh, 3 through 11, dealing with the same material that shows, uh, that reinforces that, and um So it means that – well, somebody has put it, slightly overstated, uh, that uh, Pentecost, what happens on the day of uh, uh, Acts 2, is the high point, uh, the climactic point of the entire two-volume work. Hmm. And um, I think that has – as I said, it's overstated, um, but I think it makes – it it, it contains an important – Point, and that is this, and and I would qualify it to make it an acceptable point that cross, but particularly resurrection, ascension, the reception of Jesus in his ascension as a reward for his work and the out of the Spirit and the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, as they they constitute a uh, temporally distinct but a kind of complex of events, uh, Mm. that is. Uh, the, that 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 event complex is the heart of the two documents, and that's why Luke. Um, it's important to look back into um, Luke's gospel. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you want to talk about that further. Well,
0: I, I do want to make the point uh, for those who who might have missed that. For some of our younger or, or uh, those who haven't studied under Doctor Gaffin or read his books, there's a there's a major significance in saying that that all these things are a complex of events and that they're connected. Because oftentimes Pentecost, or Christ's work is truncated before Pentecost, and therefore you start to allow for Pentecost to be repeatable and other things. So the case we're going to lay for cessationism and uh, for the closing of the canon, et cetera, in, in the next few moments, is bound up with that understanding that Pentecost is a once-for-all event. Uh, tied to Christ's work, and and it can't be repeated or, or continued any more than Christ could come back again, die again, and be resurrected again.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's very well encapsulated, summed up.
2: Uh, if if I can um, piggyback off of what uh, Camden was asking here, then Dr. Gaffin, um, and and maybe this will, because if I recall correctly from. From your lectures, and it's been been a while. But uh, if I recall correctly, there is a very important literary connection, is there not, between the baptism of Jesus in the Gospel and then the outpouring of the Spirit given in the Book of Acts?
1: Yeah, very definitely. See Acts one five. See just before the the well known statement of verse eight. Uh, Jesus there uh, tells the uh, disciples. Um, that they're to remain in Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit. will come not many days now. And then he cites John's, he references John's baptism, uh, that John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you see what that does, Acts 1-5, what Jesus does is point us uh, in two directions at the same time. Forward to Pentecost, mm-hmm. but back to the ministry of John, uh, as you were, you know, bringing it up in in the way you posed the question, and shows then um, uh, how the fulfillment on the day of Pentecost is the um, the what takes place on the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of John's prophecy when he said, "I will baptize you with whole, with uh, I baptize you with water." He That is, the Messiah coming after him will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. And then in the narrative in Luke 3, what happens immediately after that, uh, as, if you will, in the redemptive historical flow, John the Baptist transitions now to Jesus, uh, who is the Messiah. Um, He is baptized with John's water baptism— uh, as a way of marking him out as the one who's going to be our sin bearer, uh, as the one who is going to going to uh, become involved in struggle against kingdom state Satan's kingdom that will bring him eventually to the cross, uh, as he's marked out by John's water baptism in that way. At the same time, he receives the Holy Spirit for that messianic task. So there's kind of an analogy or a parallel between the Jordan and Pentecost. What the Jordan was for Christ, Pentecost is for Christ's people, mm. uh, the Church. Uh, and
0: um, well, What about the connection there when John says, you know, I baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize in, in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Uh, what could we say for the baptism of the Spirit and fire as it relates to Pentecost?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's important— as you look at that expression uh, with the Holy Spirit and fire as the medium of the baptism, of the mess- Messianic baptism, uh, that you see that not as is often done as uh, signifying two baptisms, one positive and, and one negative, but really one baptism with, uh, with, um, with two outcomes— now uh, I think it would be fair to say, spirit points to um, the positive outcome that comes on the day of Pentecost, but there's also fire um, that is present on the day of Pentecost. You could we could talk about how that's to be understood, and I think it's best seen not so much against, not so much as an empowering, pointing to empowerment or even cleansing. Although those aspects may be there, but it uh, it's pointing to the fire of judgment that's associated with the messianic baptism that uh, is now has been exhausted or mitigated uh, in the case of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tongues of fire just hover above them. They they don't in any way uh, have any carry any kind of threat. So, uh, by the way, the back, see, I think what what probably needs to be said more clearly here is that what is, I think, too often not appreciated in the discussions that go on about Pentecost and what becomes very clear from the perspective of John's prophecy is that the messianic spirit and fire baptism is a matter of judgment. Mm. Mm -hmm. It has to do with a judgment ordeal. Um, so and that you can see that the fire in the context is 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 destructive. Mm. It consumes the chaff, and, and so that in in the overall perspective, Jesus bears uh, the fire that um, is due our sins. He's he's baptized with that baptism. As he has been baptized with the Spirit, as the Jordan, he's baptized with judgment, in order that the church might be b- mm. baptized with blessing on the day of Pentecost.
0: Our second clip is from episode number one hundred and thirty with Daryl Hart. Doctor Hart has written extensively on American Presbyterianism, and here he shares a few practical thoughts on Presbyterian distinctives.
3: And here, this is, there's a really fascinating um, article that R. B. Kuiper not um not the same Kuiper as uh, Abraham, Abraham Kuiper right. it's spelled differently as well and i guess the dutch actually pronounce his name cooper um, but um rb kuiper f- for many years taught at westminster seminary but he also was taught at calvin college and calvin seminary i mean so he stra- he straddled both sides of the reformed presbyterian world here in north america uh or in the United States and uh anyway anniversary of the OPC 1946 writes an article called what's right with the OPC and he talks about the OPC is narrow in the proper sense of the word and it's cosmopolitan or broad in the proper sense of the word and you can disagree with his his take on this but one of the things that that I think sometimes gets lost when we talk about receiving people into Presbyterian churches and 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 including people within our fellowship is that um and this goes back to the PCAs participation and membership within Napark and whether they want to be associated with these seemingly narrow narrowly reformed churches that are in are in Napark or if they want to be more broadly calvinistic but those those narrowly reformed churches in Napark the smaller ones are also holding on to the fuller expressions or the broader expressions of reformed Christianity that are in their confessions, and those churches are oftentimes in fraternal relations with churches around the world, Reformed churches in other parts of the world, in a way that oftentimes the more new-schoolish Presbyterianism of the United States has been overtly American and less interested in an international Calvinism. So once an American Calvinism and not an international Calvinism, and this American Calvinism will go around the world and, and plant American Calvinists other other places. But instead of respecting sort of the, the churches, the indigenous churches, or the the European traditions that are that may be elsewhere. So there, the broad and, and narrow distinctions can go both ways. Now, if if it comes down to just numbers, then the broad version has more numbers in it, and so it looks broader. But if it comes down to creedal expressions, the narrow or the smaller numbers have a broader understanding of the Reformed faith, a fuller understanding, a more maximal as opposed to a minimal understanding of what God has revealed in Scripture.
2: Now, I mean, the challenge that most are going to say is that, but they're small, they're not reaching people. And that I know you hear that. It's all over the blogosphere. Right. Um, and so I think your point is intriguing that they have um, connections, the smaller Reformed denominations often do have uh, more of a worldwide connection with other churches and ministry with other like-minded churches and are less Americanized in that sense. But do you think, and I'm just giving you a chance here to to just get your thoughts out on this, do you think we have that the smaller Reformed denominations can learn from the more, I'm going to use the word missional. Um, right expecting our listeners to know what that means to some extent. Do you think we can learn from that as, you know, reformed, confessionally reformed, smaller denominations?
3: Um, I mean, I, I I have to say yes, because I'm willing to listen. But I'm going to listen to the missional folks with my Presbyterian ears on and right. and and i am limited by what i can hear i know that sounds narrow minded but that's the nature of having a confession and having a polity i mean i think you know, one of the things that old school presbyterianism stood for was a jure divino presbyterianism this is a presbyterian rule by god, by divine right in effect right. Um, right. and that god had revealed god has revealed presbyterian polity and presbyterian order as the way to run the church it's not just an option or a preference but it's the real deal and so you know and that involved with that of course is reform worship or presbyterian worship and the regular principle so i'm willing to 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 think about ways that we we can try to to reach new new converts for christ i mean that that has to be the case um but we have to do it in a presbyterian way and that's always that's always the tension Right. is that the Presbyterian way appears to be less effective. But over, he, here's here's the upside of the Presbyterian way. It sticks with the convert for the long haul. Mm. So that right. the Presbyterian way is not simply interested in converts, it's also interested in shepherding a convert over the course of his or her entire life. And, you know, when you get to the end of, end of a life, as I recently have with, with two deceased parents, I mean, that's... That's in some ways when the real test comes. It's not whether that person decides in their twenties to go to your church and to to join in the the fellowship and and the up up temple worship. Is that person? Where's that person going to be when they're on their deathbed? Not to bring right. you know that kind of kind of um, decisive question there, but you know so will they still be you know really looking to their Lord over the course of a lifetime. And, and that's also what the Presbyterian um, polity, it seems to me, or the Reformed Christianity is interested in. It's not simply the, the new converts, but it's also the old-timers. We need to right. care for them as well.
4: Today's
0: third clip comes from episode number 134, where we had the privilege of interviewing Chad Van Dixhorn on the fascinating Westminster Assembly Project.
2: Chad, um, most of our listeners will be aware of that there were some division among assemblymen on certain issues like active imputed righteousness. And um, I know covenant theology, you guys have put um, Edmund Calamy's uh, discourse on two covenants on your website. Um, for those that don't have access to EBO early English books online, that is on on your site, and very thankful for that. But um, I think that opens up a whole world of questions for many of us that we don't have access to the the research. Will the papers and the minutes that are being published will they will they open up historical um, research as to who was on the committees, the discussions that ensued, things like uh, Stephen Marshall preaching the in, uh, infant baptism sermon and how those things affected the assembly and maybe opening up more of the differences that existed between individual members and then how they came to a unified, um, a unified uh, statement walking together, really going as far as they could. Will that, will that really open up a significant realm of research?
5: Well, well, I, well, I think so. Um, This edition is, is going to open up new avenues in terms of just understanding the assembly. I think it'll be useful for biographers. It'll be useful for those who are trying to understand the development of these texts, uh, if if the minutes and the papers are used together. Um, The areas which remain the the most sparse are those behind the Confession and Catechisms. Um, The areas which are richest in their documentary uh, trail or, or, or traces are those regarding worship, church government, and the revision of the 39 Articles. Um, so inferences need to be made from those discussions in, in reading later discussions. Um, nonetheless, I think with these, uh, I, I just did a sort of a, a test pilot on chapter one of the Confession, just try to look at what I have in front of me, the minutes, the papers, and so forth. In what ways could I enrich this first chapter of the Confession, and it was it was, was very helpful for me. Uh, I think the same thing is going to be true for biographers, uh, that they're going to really find this uh, a real mine of information, and the same with uh, historians of theology. If you're interested in covenant theology, what the assembly debates and what it doesn't debate should both be very significant, um, and and the same with uh, you know discussions of justification and and, and so forth. So, Certainly. I, I think this will be a, a, a significant help for us. There's no real record like this, um, perhaps, certainly in the Reformation period, perhaps in the history of Christianity, a synod that's so well-documented. You know, we want much more. It's sad how much has been lost. But the traces uh, of uh, arguments and, and discussion that, that remain uh, are, 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 are
6: extraordinary.
0: Another hot-button issue, you mentioned justification and, of course, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, both active sure. and passive, was one of those issues. But another one that's that's come up in, in the last several years is this discussion of union with Christ and its position within the Word of Salutis and relation yep. to biblical theology and the Historia, etc. And we look at something like... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, might not have as much explicitly in there as some theologians would like, but you look at the larger catechism, question 66, question 69, which the answer says, The communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Uh, what can we say for, uh, the theology of many of the divines, um, in terms of their theology of union with Christ, and do the minutes reveal any, any debate or discussion on this?
5: Um, yeah, t- two quick thoughts. The uh, larger catechism, uh, I think Bob Lefemus said this, certainly, I, I think John Bauer has also, the larger catechism is the assembly's sort of most mature theological statement, um. And so it's useful to to look at the at, at that text as its sort of final statement on on a number of issues. Um, secondly, um, the minutes do comment on persons' perspectives on union with Christ. Um, George Walker talks about union with Christ more than some other divines. Um, some 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 simply don't don't get it and think it. And I was like Oziander oh, on the subject and so forth and mm, so, right, right. Um, the relationship what what's this union look like um, what 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 aspect of Christ's righteousness to pick one item do we share in uh, with this union and why these are questions which are discussed this will never be an easy text to read mind you uh, and it'll require sort of a thoughtful search through and, and read through to sort of understand the discussions, but they are discussed there. Uh, but union with, with Christ is, is, of course, a commonplace in the writings of, of Puritans right. and the uh, and of members of the Assembly. One only has to look at Obadiah Cedric's bowels of tender mercy sealed in the everlasting covenant um, to see the, the important place that union with Christ has. It's just lost sometime in the 18th century in the Reformed world, but it's a commonplace in the 17th.
0: The next clip is from Christ the Center, episode number 138, with Dan Kunkel, who teaches at Philmont Christian Academy, a Christian school in Erdenheim, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the methods that I remember is uh, when you played the part of uh, Dr. Unbeliever, and mm-hmm. this is, uh, it's it's kind of quote-unquote practical apologetics, but it's just, you, you kind of play devil's advocate, I guess, and um, yeah, play the part of an unbeliever. How has how's that evolved over time, and what kind of I guess if if you want to go into it, what kind of questions do you get? How has that helped um, spur the conversation along on just kind of a practical
2: level?
7: I think the big idea is that kids need to have a space uh, where they feel uh, safe, free, uh, to pose hard questions, mm-hmm. uh, difficult questions, things that they're wrestling with personally. And and however you get to that, whether it's through a role play, uh Doctor Unbeliever, whatever it might be, uh to give them the opportunity uh to say what is on their mind, uh to try to be a good listener, uh and then uh to respond to what they have to say in, in just uh forthright and, and honest ways. Uh and so it's um it's a give and take. It's it's what education is all about. It's it's what makes education education rather than indoctrination. Uh, as far as the kind of questions the kids ask, uh, it's, it's all over the map. Uh, sometimes they uh, continue to wrestle with ethical questions. Uh, uh, some kids um, are really into epistemology, believe it or not. You know, they they, they <laughs> want to know whether it's possible me. to know anything at all.
0: <laughs> Their last names are Oliphant. <laughs> uh,
7: and, yeah. and, and others, uh, they frankly see non-Christians that are just a whole lot nicer than the Christians they know are. Yeah. And, and they want to know how that can be yeah uh and so my role uh isn't to have all the answers. I'm not afraid to say i don't know uh My role, as I see it is uh to point them to scripture uh to point them to christ uh to help them uh recognize that uh in scripture you do have a rule for faith in life mm. uh you have a God for whom there is no mystery, even though there may be mystery for us sure uh and um the way that plays out is uh, sometimes I can answer their questions, sometimes I can't. Uh, but if they have the opportunity uh, to think, to wrestle with those questions, uh, to engage, um, often they're they're good with that. Yeah, they understand that the real world's messy.
8: Yeah,
7: and and sometimes, actually, many times uh, they don't want a pat answer. They've already had those before. They're That's looking right. For something else.
2: Yeah. Now, uh, a a secular uh, person or a secular philosopher listening to uh, you talk about Christian education, they might think, well, um, a Christian education is sort of a a brainwashing tool as opposed to education for the sake of education. Right. Uh, Just sort of neutrally out there, weigh all the topics, don't give one priority over the next. Uh, How would you respond to that as a as somebody who teaches in a Christian institution?
7: No education, uh, whether Christian or, or secular, or uh, education coming from another uh, religious uh, perspective is neutral. Uh, all education uh, is uh, value-laden. All education, both in terms of content and method, uh, comes from a worldview, it comes from a perspective. So there really is no such thing as education for education's sake. Uh, There's always an agenda there. Uh, No teacher can teach everything that there is to teach, even in the selection of the material. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are uh, worldview commitments at hand. So my response would be uh, that um, it's not a matter of uh, an education that is value-laden or perspectival. Uh, versus a education that is somehow neutral, it's a question of what perspective, what worldview, mm-hmm. uh, what prior um, commitments uh, have already informed the method, uh, the content. So let's uh, let's take it to the presuppositional level. Yeah. Um, you know, Van Til, uh, I, I think. Um, has done a great uh, work for the church as, uh, uh, as a whole in terms of his work in apologetics. But uh, I'm prepared to argue that some of his uh, most in- enduring work is in some way uh, his uh, greatest le- legacy is actually in the area of education mm-hmm. uh, because uh, he made it so very clear that um, it is the triune God of Scripture that provides the foundation for knowledge of any kind amen uh, and uh, we bring that uh, we attempt to bring that into the classroom not only in Bible class but in history yeah. and science and math and the arts uh, we um, we create uh, uh, sculpture we create painting uh, because we are created in the image of a triune God who is an artist mm. uh, yeah. one plus one doesn't equal one because pantheism is false one <laughs> plus one equals uh, Two, because uh, there is a trying God who is ultimately one and ultimately three.
0: In episode 140, James Dolezal and I welcomed Dr. Scott Oliphant to speak about Michael Suddeth's book, The Reformed Objection to Natural Theology. The discussion was another interesting look into the world of anthropology and apologetics. Now, of course, we have uh, a few quotes we need to define our terms, and uh, right along in the beginning of this book, Suddeth. Uh, has a few helpful quotes that I'd like to read. He says, In the broad sense, natural theology refers to what can be known or rationally believed about the existence and nature of God on the basis of human reason or our natural cognitive faculties. Then a little later, he says, Natural theology is more narrowly and perhaps more commonly identified with the project of developing arguments for God's existence, so-called theistic arguments. In this sense, natural theology attempts to reason to truths about God solely from what we know by way of sense perception, induction, intuition, and other natural cognitive processes. Uh, what, what Michael Suddeth does is he divides into two types of natural theology, natural theology alpha and natural theology beta. James, could you maybe uh, provide a, a little definition, a brief overview yeah. of alpha, and then uh, maybe any objections that may or may not be laid against natural theology alpha?
4: Yeah, very briefly, uh, he. I think it's essential. I think what he means by natural theology alpha is what we mean by implanted knowledge. Sometimes people use intuitive knowledge. Um, I I think implanted does a better job keeping the divine uh, action in focus. That that God places a knowledge of Himself uh, in man, and that it's in man as man, uh, and in a certain sense, it's it's pre-propositional knowledge it's not knowledge that is reasoned to through a syllogism or knowledge that is arrived at uh through a series of propositions and entailments and that's the, the kind of things we might encounter in dogmatic theology yeah um it it's an it's a knowledge that it's a knowledge that is there even if it's a even if it's not there articulated in a certain form of words mm-hmm. um and i and what Suduth does is he, he's he's I think his general view of the reformed tradition is that that is ne- that is nearly universally accepted. The objection to natural the reformed objection to natural theology yeah. that he 's interested in uh is not primarily against with alpha against it's with the beta against alpha he he pretty much sees that as universally accepted but what, if anything, can we do in natural theology beyond arguing for an implanted knowledge of God uh, via passages like Romans 1? Mm-hmm. Um, can, we, can we then say that there's a—can a, there be also, in addition to, a rational component? That's where he gets in, into in his uh, natural theology beta.
0: Uh, Dr. Oliphant, how might we distinguish, uh, or how might we be a little more precise on our terms when we're speaking about natural theology and natural law? That's another topic that comes up uh, often in, in discussions. What are the two, and how are, how are they different?
8: Well, I think um, natural law is a subset of natural theology. It's uh, it's Paul's uh, exposition in Romans two that um, that the law is written on our hearts and it has to do it has a distinctively ethical component in that sense and it comes in the way that Paul describes it there uh, comes by way of God's general revelation um, so in that sense I see natural law as a more specific uh, example of of natural theology generally
0: that's helpful to know and wh- who are some key figures here in the whole natural theology debate uh, either pro or con uh, maybe in the history of apologetics after all you just edited with uh, Bill Edgar a whole series on readings uh, in apologetics did you find much uh, discussion on the topic of natural theology there
8: yeah there is there is a good bit it's um, you know it, it sort of reaches its apex obviously in in uh, in medieval period um, with Thomas who who himself uh, got uh, some of his material from the Muslim philosophers earlier. Um, but um, obviously, in the early church, um, arguments tend not to be as philosophically oriented, partly because people are having their heads chopped off, uh, so there's not <laughs> a lot of time for reflection. You, they're, they're, those, that's an apologetic that goes to the emperor, really, and says, you know, you need to be consistent with your own uh, testimony if you're going to call yourself pious, then why are you killing people for this sort of thing? And then by the time you get to the medieval period and things in that, in that sense have calmed down a little bit, then there's time for more reflection, and mm-hmm. um, I think that's when you get a more fully developed uh, notion of natural theology.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what is the Reformed objection? Asadath uh, spends his time on three big parts, uh, natural theology and the immediate knowledge of God. This part three is sin and the Christian reconstruction of natural theology, looking more at the noetic effects of sin, which would be perhaps the one that many Vantillians would go to first. Uh, And then part four, the logic of natural theology. If we dive into part two here, natural theology and the immediate knowledge of God. James, why would the Reformed object to natural theology, given an understanding of well, the immediate knowledge of God.
4: I'll first say that Suduth, with his first chapter, really lays down that the notion of the Reformed objection to natural <laughs> theology is a misnomer. I think he's. I think he's do, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek with the title of the book, uh, especially with his definite article there, uh, because uh, not only is there not a universal objection to natural theology, um, the objections that are there are hardly uniform, and a lot of his book is showing... Uh, is showing varieties from from reformed uh, perspectives, but in terms of in terms of the question of the immediate knowledge of God, uh, two objections potentially come up that he identifies. The first is that that um, natural theology alpha, what he which he calls that implanted knowledge of God, um, makes natural theology beta that sort of reflect that sort of cognitive. Reflective, um, contemplative, theologizing uh, based on based on data in nature um, or or in conscience, it it makes that it makes the deliverances of natural theology beta irrelevant. Meaning, yeah, they may be tr- uh, nat- you know it may be true. You may have reasoned through all these things and come to these conclusions that God is this or God is that based on your observations of nature. And yes, uh, you know you you may be right, but it, it's it's entirely irrelevant and time uh poorly spent because you already have the knowledge of this god implanted. So because you have an immediate knowledge of god, we don't need to seek a natural knowledge of god beyond what's already implanted. Uh we can just say look, we've got the implanted, let's go let's go do biblical exegesis. Um we're not you know, we're not going to do we're not going to do reflective theology based on uh you know conscience or laws of nature or this type of thing. Mm. Um, that's the softer argument. The the stronger immediacy argument is what he calls the exclusive immediacy, mm. EI. He does a lot of the little kind of plantiga type formulas. Every everything is reduced to a sort of analytic formula for Saduth, which is difficult at the outset, but if you can catch on to what he's doing, it, it becomes helpful as a shorthand. The exclusive immediacy argument is that because because every Person has the knowledge of God already immediately implanted. Um, it is it is impossible, not simply irrelevant, um, but impossible that we should seek uh, natural knowledge beyond that. What he essentially does, though, in identifying these arguments is he he basically looks at all the objections um, and says and comes basically to the conclusion that no one in the Reformed tradition is really arguing consistently that. That we cannot or should not do any sort of reflective theologizing, um, and he does that through evaluating a number of different uh, a number of different critics. Hmm. So
8: that's that's the sum of the immediacy argument. Uh. Can I? Um, would you mind if I just gave a little background to what? what oh, no, go ahead. Because I think it's important at least to put this in context. This this book, like everything else, didn't uh, come in a, into a vacuum. Um, the title itself is is planning is um, right from Plantinga, his article. Well, from his initial uh, address to the Catholic Philosophical Association, which became an article. Uh, the address was in nineteen eighty. The article in okay. eighty two. Um, and and what what planning was trying to do? I think it's important to see because Sudduth is working on a corrective to this, which which I think planning I would agree with, um, given his endorsement on the book. But what what planning was trying to do initially in his reformed objection? Was to show that um, uh, uh, people like Bavink, uh, He he liked to pick Bavink, um Calvin, obviously, and then depending on on he wrote about this in various places, and depending on the the chapter or the article, he would throw in Kuiper or Bart um, on occasion. Uh, his his concern, planning his concern in the, in his initial development here in the eighties, was to try to set forth uh, what what he's now done in his warrant book, but to try to set forth uh, that belief in God is properly basic. That's a response, uh, arguing that is a response to the so-called evidential objection, which really uh, was, the, uh, was the predominant view in philosophy and analytic philosophy, and that is that you can't believe in anything at any time without sufficient evidence uh, for that belief. And planning is trying to show that can't be the case because there are too many things that we believe uh, for which there is not sufficient evidence, and by evidence here he means propositional evidence that right. is you you, you can 't develop a uh, inferential argument and he he argues that in uh, in God and other minds and then he he moves uh, in in his epistemology uh to uh, toward uh, what he called initially a reformed epistemology, meaning that he as he argued it uh Bob, Inc., Calvin all these guys were saying uh. In in various ways, what planning is saying, and that is that belief in God is properly basic, or can be properly basic. That doesn't negate inference; it just says that inference is not needed for rational belief to be there. Now, I think what there's um, a lot that can be said about that. I don't think Plantinga has the Reformed tradition right. I don't think there are a bunch of Reidian foundationalists, uh, <laughs> e- even if anachronistically, uh, because there's too much going on there to to uh, to kind of paste um, them onto a philosophical context. But I, I do think what um, what Suttoth is doing and, uh, and and doing well is taking that challenge, is there a Reformed ejection to natural theology, taking that seriously and trying to put together what really happened historically and now how do we think about this philosophically. Um, just a couple of things to say about that. In, in, in my read of the book, and this is just a personal uh, personal opinion, when I start reading natural theology a and natural theology B, I find that um, unhelpful and I recognize analytic guys do this and they want formula and they want to they want to be able to to denominate things and and I've done that in some of my writing but just say um, just say implanted knowledge of God and natural theology you don't have to do alpha and beta yeah I just don't understand why you have to go through all that um, uh, Locutionary stuff that to me doesn't doesn't help because then you're saying well with natural theology beta but not a natural theology mm-hmm. just say implanted knowledge. The other thing, <laughs> the other thing I think is is probably I'm a little tentative here, but I think this is probably a little too clean in the book. He makes a a, a pretty a pretty significant distinction between um, cognitio incita and cognitio acquisita, that is, implanted knowledge and acquired knowledge. Uh, one is sort of immediate, internal. The other is more inferential and external. I don't think Paul's making those distinctions in Romans 1. Um, it doesn't mean that acquisita can't be inferential, um, but I don't think it necessarily is. And I think when, when, uh, when, when Calvin talks about, for example, uh, at the moment you open your eyes, you see the, the majesty of the creator. Um, that 's meant to be an there 's meant to be an immediacy there by mm-hmm. virtue of what is external to us so so I think paul 's argument in Romans one is fairly seamless, and that is that there 's knowledge of God internally and externally, both of which are non inferential the acquired can be inferential, and Suduth agrees with that, but I think the distinction is a bit too hard and fast uh, between you know what what he sort of denominates alpha and beta and um, I, I think when you begin p- part of the Part of the issue, if I could ramble on for just one minute, I think part of the issue here, and um, this runs both ways, but oftentimes philosophers try to make um, theology philosophy. Uh And sometimes theologians try to make, I understand that. But um, trying to make this argument uh, more philosophical than it is, I'm trying to be tentative here, can result in some lack of clarity and I think some some misapplied yeah. um concepts and terms. That's helpful. And I see that in his book. Now that's not so much a criticism as it is to say if you're going to do this, join with a theologian to do that. Let's, you know, do this together mm-hmm. rather than just make a philosophical argument for what really is a theological problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I see I see Suttoth doing that. Now he's very fair. I don't want to impunity thing here, but um, there's just, there's a lot of discussion uh, about things in a philosophical way that I think if you make it theological, it's going to be clearer, yes, clearer, um, than, than the analytic uh, philosophers uh, are sometimes. So um, I, I think that's, that's one of my criticisms. I would, I would have preferred more theology here.
0: In Christ, the Center, episode one hundred and forty-four, Danny Allinger spoke about modern Roman Catholicism, and we started our discussion by speaking about Vatican II, a significant event in the Catholic Church. Vatican II. Now, Vatican II. Initially, when I first heard it many years ago, I thought that was a person. I thought he might have been. A, I thought he might have been a pope. But then I soon learned that it was not. And, then, and I also thought it was probably Vatican II. But it's actually, we go by, it's by the name Vatican II. And uh, Danny, since you wrote the primer, I'll let you explain what Vatican II was and situate it maybe in the historical context of, of the Catholic Church. You mentioned some of the pronouncements and some of the encyclicals that led up to it. What was Vatican II? And in broad terms, why, why was it significant for the Catholic Church? Sure, I'll try. <laughs> um, we did a great job in the primer, so I'm assuming you can do it.
9: Vatican II is an ecumenical council. And it was called uh, by Pope John the Twenty Third. It's the twenty first ecumenical council in, in Catholic history. The previous uh, one had been in the nineteenth century, Vatican I in 1870. Uh, John the Twenty Third was a surprise pope uh, in that. Uh, He was never considered a leading candidate. Mm. Uh, On the 11th ballot, he was elected. No one thought that he was going to do anything. He was jovial, well-liked. He's now regarded as perhaps the most beloved pope of all time. But within uh, eight weeks, he determined to call an ecumenical council to update the church. He Mm. believed that the church had fallen behind uh, in regard uh, to what it should be in its relationship uh, not only to scholarship uh, but also to the world. And so he wanted basically to change the tone uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the the council then started in 1962, uh, and it lasted through uh, 1965.
0: So it was a long council, and they met, what, I believe, four times, was it? Yeah, they have four sessions. And they produced several documents, four constitutions, uh, nine declarations, I believe, and then three, what was it, pronouncements or something? There were 16 documents. 16 documents. But
9: the, but the major ones are the four dec- uh, decrees that they take priority over everything yeah. else.
0: yeah. Now, uh, Vatican II uh, intentionally came to try to update or update the theology of the Church, bring it into the modern age, bring it into in interaction with modern science, and they called this process a giornamento, uh, updating, or some other some other people have tried to describe it as opening the windows and kind of letting some new air come in. But I have this wonderful quote, uh, an interesting paragraph from William Shea, who wrote a book called The Lion and the Lamb which I think sets the stage a little for what happens historically uh, in the Catholic uh, versus evangelical debate. Uh, William Shea writes on page 15 of his book, Until Vatican II, when the Catholic Counter-Reformation ended and Catholic anti-modernism collapsed, at least evangelicals and Catholics had little problem identifying what Catholicism was and who was a Catholic, and when the evangelical commentators were in doubt they could rely on Roman authorities to settle the question in short order. Since then, the public strife among Catholics, widespread theological and religious dissent from official teaching, the appearance of competing interpretations of the council and of doctrine, the emergence of Tridentine separatist movements, the new papal attitude toward Judaism and other world religions, an intensified theological syncretism, and explicit doctrines of inclusivism and enculturation one is forced to wonder how much of Tridentine Catholicism is left. And here's the wonderful sentence. This polymorphous character of contemporary Catholicism makes it as difficult to define as evangelicalism. We've had Daryl Hart on the program before, talking about deconstructing evangelicalism, trying to define it, and basically the thesis of his book is That You Can't. It's so, so broad and uh, it's, it's so slippery at times to know whether one is or is not an evangelical. And historically speaking, uh, we would not even draw the line, the historical line uh, from the OPC back through evangelicalism. Uh, we have entirely different uh, a different historical heritage than, say, neo-evangelicals. That's a subject for an, uh, another episode. But the point being... When Vatican II came, the Council uh, really changed the Church, the Catholic Church, to the point of we have a hard time understanding who fits in and who doesn't. Well, Danny, in your primer, you mentioned two lines of thought that speak about uh, the reaction to this Council, mm-hmm. uh, to the updating, so to speak. Um, could you describe those for us? Sure.
9: Internal to Catholicism, uh, for the, basically, for the, uh, Past forty years, and it's intensified in the past decade. Is a dispute on how to understand Vatican II and what it meant for the life of the Church. There are those like John O'Malley, who's written some wonderful books and articles, a historian Jesuit a historian who believes that that it changed the um, the landscape in Catholicism. That was a new day. That views on revelation, uh, the nature of the Church nature of the church to the world, uh, regard to the liturgy, that everything changed. There are others um, who believe uh, that it di- it didn't, uh, it wasn't a radical change, but it was just uh, an improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard John Newhouse was of that opinion. The current pope, Pope Benedict, is of that opinion, and Pope Benedict has been very hard on the other side, calls them a a hermeneutic of of uh, discontinuity that has harmed the church greatly, um, and so that's the dispute going on within the church. And I think it's fair to say that the theologians from Marquette to, uh, to Duquesne to wherever, and the priests, are overwhelmingly advocates of the hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutic of discontinuity. Yes they don't they don't agree with pope uh, benedict and they and they disagree radically with with richard john newhouse and what he um uh, uh, you know argued so uh, here we are as evangelicals and we're we're on the sidelines listening to this debate and it's often easy for us to i think get duped and so mm-hmm. that was part of the purpose behind writing uh, the article was to try to at least to put uh, something out there, uh, not only from a reform perspective, but also just to put the actual primary facts out there from what uh, the documents themselves say, and also to let the Catholics speak for themselves.
0: In episode 145, John Fesco spoke about the Reformed doctrine of baptism. Dr. Fesco brings a wonderful synthesis of biblical, systematic, and historical cases for paedobaptism baptism to this discussion. You mentioned John the Baptist several times, and uh, okay. you, we've, we've talked about the whole scope of redemptive history. Toward the end of the Old Testament era, we end up with a prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, and then it carries over into 4 about uh, the one who will come and prepare the way. Uh, that, that, the quote from Malachi is combined with a, with a quotation from Isaiah uh, in the New Testament. And we know and understand that John the Baptist is that one, that voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the mm-hmm. Lord with a baptism of repentance. I, I'm this has been a, a subject of, of meditation for me for for several years though. how careful or cautious should we be in trying to formulate an entire doctrine of of New Testament baptism based on right. John? If John was the the last right. figure uh, the last prophetic figure of the Old Testament who ushers who closes off an era, how cautious right. if at all should we be, uh, when we look at his baptism, trying to make it normative?
6: Now, I think very cautious, uh, because, again, this is where we can begin to uh, look at a passage or a portion of Scripture in isolation from the rest, in that John is appealed to because uh, of some of the language in the gospel narratives that sh- that appear to give the impression that Jesus is uh, immersed, and therefore John the Baptist becomes the paradigm Uh, But as you said, um, uh, you know, the thing that we have to take note of here, for example, is that uh, John the Baptist was the terminal uh, Old Testament prophet. So uh, there's a sense in which he is not in the New Testament. He passes the baton off, if you will, to Christ as, as the forerunner. Now, we can say that because he lives during the time of Christ, that yes, he lives in the New Testament period, but he's in a very unique relationship unlike that of any other person, really, uh, in uh, all of Scripture. He he rides the fence, so to speak, or sits on the border between the Old Testament and the New Testament, with a, fir- a foot firmly planted on either side. Secondly, I think one of the most important, um, uh, Notable facts that we should take attention or take, bring our attention to is that uh, Christ inaugurates baptism with uh, the ending of the Matthew uh, the ending of God, Matthew's gospel with uh, Matthew 28 mm-hmm. uh, 18 and 19 with the great commission and particularly with the mention of the triune name and that is being the baptismal formula whereas John does not baptize in uh, the name of the trinity. Now what's a really curious fact of history, is that Calvin says that John the Baptist did baptize in the name of the Trinity. And I think that would be really odd. (laughs) I could Mm -hmm. be wrong about that, but that would be really odd. But more importantly, the text mentions nothing about that. The Trinity is certainly
0: present, but it's not in the formula of the baptism at all.
6: Exactly. exactly. And so that should be a huge clue to us, I think, that uh, John's baptism is is different uh, from the baptism that Christ inaugurates. Uh, so, uh, you know, to to construct a doctrine of baptism almost exclusively from John the Baptist's activities, uh, yeah, is, is, is problematic. And again, I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say, we've got to go back to the Old Testament further and look back to Malachi, look back to Joel. Uh, look back to Isaiah and to, even to the Pentateuch and to Genesis so that we have a backdrop to John's activity mm-hmm. and then understand what it is that he's passing off uh, to Christ and how it is, is that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. So yes, I, I, I totally agree.
0: Later in the program, Dr. Fesco spoke about various cases in the Bible that seem to argue for a covenantal understanding of baptism.
6: You know, First and foremost, I think our particular Baptists or Reformed Baptist brethren, uh, they want to balance the weight uh, on the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament or the Old Covenant to the New Covenant on discontinuity. And uh, we Reform folks, uh, Presbyterians, we want to uh, put the balance upon uh, continuity. And right. uh, and here's the way I think that we can responsibly put the emphasis upon continuity without falling into any of the problems of, say, for example, uh, Pado communion or, or something to that effect, is that um, there's a distinction in that I think too many people think that baptism and, say, the Lord's Supper, because they're both sacraments, they function exactly alike. And uh, the bottom line is that they don't. And if I, memory serves me correctly, right. I think John Murray draws some... Uh, points points this out, I think, somewhere. It may be in his baptism book, but I know that uh, Calvin in his institutes also addresses this. But uh, in much with a greater degree of specificity, I think we can say that baptism is covenant inauguration and uh, and God in that uh, relationship deals with uh, covenantal units, households. Uh, And so this is why I think we see the redemption, for example, as you've pointed out, of all of Israel Uh, or of uh, Moses—I'm sorry, not Moses—Noah's entire household. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we get to uh, covenant ratification, uh, I think that's where uh, we begin to see uh, the judgment of individuals. And in particular, you see, um, you know, some of Noah's sons, uh, Ham and his sons, uh, judged uh, because of their uh, ungodly activity, and that with the repetition— of the cursing of seed I think that that is uh, uh, evidence that the seed of the serpent is still alive just as uh, Genesis 3 closes with the cursing and blessing of seed so you see there in uh, in, uh, at the end of the flood in Genesis uh, 8 and 9 that you see the blessing and cursing of seed to remind us that the seed of the serpent is still present and then same thing here with the uh, exodus that all of Israel is baptized, including their infants, which is a point I think that we Reform folks need to emphasize more. Infant baptism is present in the New Testament; it's right there, First Corinthians ten. Right, right. But what people don't make the connection is they don't see in Exodus 24 the covenant ratification, uh, where the elders of Israel alone, uh, and Moses and Aaron and the priests ascend to Mount Sinai, and um, they eat in the presence of God unharmed. And in particular, what I think is so crucial to making this connection is that there are only two places in the Scriptures where you find the terms blood and covenant, or blood of the covenant mentioned, and that's in the uh, Lord's Supper narratives in the Gospels. And then it's also in that Exodus 24 narrative where Moses sprinkles mm. the blood of the covenant upon the people, and they personally, as well as corporately, but personally ratify the covenant saying that I will do this, and if, uh, if I don't, then may its curses fall upon me. And I think we see that, especially in the Lord's Supper, and here's the, an important distinction that I'm going to throw out, is the Passover the significance of the lord's supper or is it the occasion and i would say i think it's the occasion of the lord's supper not that it's an exact correspondent to uh to uh to to the passover so that when we look at the lord's supper itself it's covenant ratification it's a miniature anticipation of the final judgment where christ is present and we ask ourselves am i looking to christ by faith that is something that only uh, somebody who makes a profession of faith can do, and, I, and that's why uh, you know, I think Paul makes the statements that he does there in First Corinthians 11, that you have to rightly recognize the body and blood of Christ. And so that's uh, the important distinction, the difference between covenant inauguration and covenant uh, consummation, or you could say inauguration and ratification perhaps.
0: Our final clip comes from episode 146, where we were privileged to have Dr. Peter Lilback and Dr. Carl Truman on the program to speak about Christianity and politics. Dr. Lilbach, you've written a, a, a very intensive book on uh, the subject of George Washington and his spirituality. Uh, you would argue his Orthodox Christianity, or they close to that. Um, does it matter if the founders of the United States were Christian? And if so, uh, how does that impact Our understanding of uh, the American government, at least today?
10: Well, in a certain sense, history matters because history is written by the victors. That's one of the. If you can't tell the story of the past, you've lost the impact on the culture. In fact, it has been said the man who controls the past controls the future. So it's very important that we engage history. But I would say specifically when we talk about the issue of the faith of our founders, it really is an attempt. Uh, to say where did our nation begin and from that starting point then to determine what is the logical outflowing of those core values. Uh, if, for example, our position is, well, they really were basically semi-atheists or agnostics or overt deists, mm-hmm. meaning there was a creator, but he has nothing to do with the world. It's just he's the first cause. We need a starting point. And so God was there. And then it makes sense, well, as things have evolved and as people have developed uh, philosophical and political viewpoints, as they've moved more and more toward a secularism and an atheism, it makes total sense. As we have developed, we've moved from an uncertainty about God to just a simple rejection of the need for God to be part of culture. It's just mm-hmm. a logical progression. But if you <clears throat> look at the beginning of the American experiment and you say, no, There were certainly deists there, and there were some agnostics, but by and large, they were trying to build a theistic understanding of the world, that God really did have a role, that prayer mattered, that providence was significant, that revelation and incarnation might actually have had significance in the way we look at everything, including, uh, let's say, government. Then if the development of the country has been more pluralistic in the sense of broader views, more religious liberty— Then it really does matter when we get to the modern world where conservative, evangelical, or reformed Christians say, I still belong in the public square. We were here at the beginning. Instead of saying, no, you are interlopers, you barged in in a place you don't belong, this is secular business, get out of here. It's a way of saying, well, of course you belong here. Christianity has been gracious enough to let everyone have a place in its culture but we still belong. We created the public square. So if you don't like what we believe, that's okay, but you've got to deal with us. We're partly here. So to wrap up that, where you begin determines where you end. And so where we started really is important because it helps to dis, uh, decide and discover and define the progress of our democracy.
0: What do you think about the, the public sphere, uh, square, the state of the public square currently, Dr. Truman, in terms of... Uh the use of religion oftentimes to uh, gain political advantage. I'm thinking particularly in the rhetoric in in election season, people will speak certain ways in order to cast themselves as religious in order to gain votes.
11: Yeah, it's it's something that's always fascinated me about American politics as opposed to British politics. Mm -hmm. Even though we have an established church uh, or established churches in the United Kingdom, Religion has never played a significant role in party politics in the way it does in the U.S. Uh, it's it's very strange to say this, but even as a Christian, when Tony Blair talked about praying, I thought I was being played, mm. because culturally in, in in British political culture, when somebody talks about praying, that's private. We don't do we don't talk about that in public. Mm. We don't use that politically. It's like it's as if the guy that you know is cheating on his wife wheels out his family at election time and presents the image of the family man. Something doesn't quite ring true about it. Well, in so, 2004,
0: uh, John Kerry basically had to do that in order to present himself as even a viable candidate.
11: Yeah, and I, I remember, um, I, can't, I think it was 1996, my wife and I were living in Michigan mm. at the time for six months, and it was, the, it was Bob Dole versus mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. Uh, runoff in the election there. And it fascinated me how Clinton uh, had to present himself, you know, appear going to church with a great big Bible, these kind yeah. of things. So the difference between British and American culture on that point is quite fascinating. And that in America, you have this radical separation of church and state, or <laughs> non-establishment, however you want to define it, yeah. but actually the politics has a much more religious idiom. In Britain, you have an established church. And by and large, religion's a bit of an embarrassment in the, in the political sphere. And mm-hmm. I have to say, my, my cultural instincts are much more secular on that one. I'm much more comfortable with guys appearing on the television and arguing economics or you know, social values mm-hmm. and not necessarily introducing religion. That's not a theological argument. That's a classic British pragmatic empirical argument I'm giving you that be in line
0: with uh, the philosophy of David Hume? <laughs> <laughs> British, I think British empiricists, and you remind me of this. Maybe you've just
11: woken up uh, Dr. Lilbeck from his dogmatic slumbers. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I prefer to think of it more of a, in line with somebody like George Orwell, who's one of my heroes, rather than David hey. Hume.
5: <laughs> yeah.
0: And this concludes our 2010 Highlight Show. We want to thank everyone for listening to Christ the Center throughout the year. And we pray that you'll join us in 2011. Please stay tuned to all of our programs and all of our other resources by visiting reformedforum.org. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.